Hello, I'm Friday Cordingly, Deputy Director of Communications. This week, to mark International Women's Day, Simone has been interviewed by Dr Cheryl Hurst, a research fellow at Leeds University Business School, who specialises in gender and inequality, leadership and organisational change. Their conversation looks at Simone's journey to becoming the university's first female vice-chancellor, the problems with competition within academia and the value of universities and their research to the world. If you'd like to get in touch, find Simone on Twitter at S.E. Boytendike or tweet the university at University Leeds. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Cheryl Hurst, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Leeds with the Centre of Employment Relations, Innovation and Change. And hi, I'm Professor Simone Boytendike and I'm Vice-Chancellor at the University of Leeds in the UK. I'm going to start the podcast with a few questions about um, Professor Bytenek as a leader at Leeds before we get into some bigger topics. What's the biggest surprise you've had since joining Leeds? I think my biggest surprise is that I feel an incredible sense of togetherness with the Leeds community um, that I, I hadn't imagined would be possible given the, the distance working and, and distance everything. Um, and it, yeah, it feels like I really, I really know the community. And of course, I don't know every individual, even though I wish I could. But I think I have a pretty good sense of what the University of Leeds is all about. And yeah, that's quite a surprise, given that I've been in post for only six months. Actually, today is it's exactly six months, so it's quite um, fitting, I think. Oh, there's always a silver lining, it seems. Exactly. And I've taught, of course, taught a class last semester online and I've taught this class many times before and I don't usually learn students names I'll try and you know introduce myself but I'm not going to make them wear name tags when you know they're adults but then on zoom I was able to call them by name and and I now know them better and and I really like that yeah and it's those examples that's a brilliant example it's those that we need to cherish and think about and evaluate and sort of dissect and think what was it about that experience that that sort of key to having that sense of community and interaction and treating our students like people and have a relationship with them instead of them being anonymous in your in your class and then see how we can best introduce that in the new post-covid world so i don't think it's going to go back completely to pre-covid i can't imagine that will want to give up the things that we like better. So, I mean, there there is a that kind of running theme, like I said, in your content about overworking and perfectionism. And perhaps this is a reflection of my disciplinary background of, uh, in organizational psychology, but you seem to talk a lot about the importance of finding what motivates us to do good work and reflecting on what our goals are. So my question for you is then, what is your finish line? What are the goals you'd like to achieve before you leave Leeds and how will you know you've achieved them? Um, yeah, the, uh, I need to think about that a little bit more. And as I do that, maybe I can say something else. I think for universities, there really is no finish line. There may be for me, because at some point, of course, I'm going to retire. I'm going to make place for another person to take over but I think it's important that we don't see academic outputs as finite and a point at which we decide uh, whether we've we've succeeded or maybe even whether we've won or lost Um, because I think that makes us very stressed that makes us feel like there is 
sort of yeah black and white outcome and and um yeah i think i think we need to keep developing we need to keep thinking about our role in the world and that that can also make us slow down more because if we feel like we have to hurry to reach this particular point at which there will be a black and white measurement um yeah i think we make ourselves miserable and make our our work much more difficult um, so when I'm then thinking about what what success could look like for me if I when I step down, let's say in you know, seven eight years from now, something like that, if I stay healthy and fit and and mentally <laughs> capable, that's the kind of timeline I'm thinking about. Um, yeah, what I would love is if at that point in time the University of Leeds is known for its values based work. It's it is known for its outlook on, on the globe, on the planet, uh, is known for its clear actions that signal that it's thinking about what universities are all about, um, is known for its social activism and thereby almost inevitably also is a magnet for different talent, for younger people from a diverse background, for people who know that when they come to the University of Leeds, if they have the drive and the brains, they'll be able to have a really good career. While in other universities, they may be more, they may, they're maybe more in their way in terms of roadblocks because, yeah, they're first in their family or they're from an ethnic minority or they're women or a combination thereof. So I, I think I would be incredibly happy if the day I say, uh, now I'm, I'm stepping down, um, it's clear that the, the makeup of our student body and, and our people in leadership positions um, in the academic and support services part of the university um, are more diverse and are more a reflection of society. And there is that true sense of community and sense of belonging for people from many different backgrounds. So I would love for the University of Leeds to provide opportunities to talented staff and students um, from very diverse backgrounds who may have more trouble making it in academia in other places. And we're a great university, we're research intensive, we do wonderful stuff. And to open ourselves up to, to people who can also enrich us and who can help us change that definition of, of academic excellence and of, of what we want to, to do, uh, produce for the world, I think I'm going to be really happy. That's definitely a big goal, but I don't think unachievable at Leeds. Certainly I'm at Lub, so I'm I'm at the business school, but there is a sense of community. Yeah. And there's a kind of collective energy that I think only exists on university campuses. Now, and I think University of Leeds is in a good place compared to many other research intensive universities. I think we're further on that path to be being truly open to the world. One of the things I really uh, love about Leeds is when I go to a conference and I say I'm at Leeds, I will often hear people say, oh, I heard that's a really good place to work. Oh, wonderful. It, it's nice to be known as being a, somewhere that people like to work. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think that sense of pride is really important. And I think if I, of course, not on my own at all, but with everybody else in the university, uh, if I'm able to implement our new strategy, then then we will feel that sense of pride in our community and university even more so than we already do. 
speaking of that that 10-year, that strategy I was reading, there's that 10-year goal for the University of Leeds, and it talks about harnessing some of that community and supporting collaboration with staff, students, and the wider region. And it talks about reducing local and global inequality. Yeah. When I hear things like that, I think there has to be some new communication channels that need to be opened. And so what what kind of communication channels are are you looking to open and strengthen to promote that type of collaboration? Yeah, I think we're just starting to think about that. Um, and, and I'm hoping also for a lot of creativity from the university community and from the communications team and, and everybody who really wants to help me think. Um, so one thing I'm just thinking about, and you should probably apply, is that we're going to try and publish a book, not on paper, uh, it's going to be completely digital uh, with chapters filled by postdoctoral students and or postdocs, I shouldn't say students, postdocs and early career researchers, sort of assistant professors around the themes of culture, community impact and reducing inequalities and make that something like a yeah, living document, maybe able to link podcasts and videos to it. And those authors, I'm, I'm aiming for sort of 20 to 25, and who knows, we may do another volume if it's really successful. I would love for them to help me um, think about how to put the University of Leeds on the map, how to make our new strategy a lived reality. And and I think that's one one of the ways I want to, to think is how to get the younger voices, the voices that aren't normally at the table, not sort of the usual suspects we see all the time, how to get them more heard and and give younger people um, yeah, more influence on, on building our strategy and building the University of Leeds in the future, because you are the future. I, mean, I know for sure that I, yeah, in, in 10 years, at the end of the strategy, I will no longer be vice chancellor, but many of the, the postdocs, whether you're at Leeds or somewhere else, you'll hopefully still be very active. And even if you're outside of university, you'll have that research background, the research foundation. You're going to be the global leaders of tomorrow. And, and getting your voices in and making sure that we yeah, we get all that, that talent and all that forward-thinking, innovative, intellectual uh, energy into everything we do, for me, is a huge priority. We're also seeing and witnessing right now the changing world of work. And it's not... It's just different, a lot of what, what young people are looking for in terms yeah. of how they move forward. Yeah. Um, so to go back a, a bit on what we were talking about with th this overwork idea, and I know COVID has kind of made it, um, you know, it's a different situation than normal. But even before COVID, academics and professionals were certainly working, you know, in overdrive. But we're all working within this system that regards this commitment and this, you know, elusive idea of perfectionism that you touch on in your blog posts. And you personally have become successful in this system. What were some of the defining moments in your experience and, and what do you hope to change for the people coming up after you? Yeah, I don't know whether there was a defining moment. I think it was a whole set of things. Um, Certainly the fact that, that I was a single mother for a while and was juggling actually writing my PhD with taking care of two small children by myself was, was extremely painful and difficult and lots of nights that were far too short. And 
I felt I had no choice. I needed to do it. And I, yeah, it's probably a good thing I did it because I don't know whether I would have had this job if I hadn't completed my PhD. But just thinking about what that meant for me physically and mentally, and it was, it was really too much. And, and I think what, I would, what started dawning on me, but over a period of many, many years, is that what we're, what we're telling ourselves and each other we need to do isn't written in stone. If you start, I think it, what changed my mind was when I started going up the career ladder and was able to look at it from a bit more distance and not be so in it that it really felt like there was only one way to do it and, and I needed to produce, I needed to write, I needed to do all those things that, that clearly were asked from a, from a young researcher. Um, and I think I started to realize how many of these outcomes are so poorly defined and how some of these outcomes aren't, aren't probably even what we think we're really all about. And yeah, so that, that, that's happened to me over the last maybe 10, 15 years. So when I was your age, I was in it and I had you know, very little awareness of how unhealthy it all was. And maybe when you're younger, you don't realize what a toll it takes. Um, and it's only when you start getting older, you think, why, why are we all doing this? But it's harder to change it when you're not in some kind of leadership position. So I think it gradually came. And also with my own personal development, just starting to wonder how I could reduce my own stresses and what the things were that drove me to, to be so perfectionistic. And that had a lot of that had nothing to do with work. It was just part of my upbringing. And you know, the Netherlands is quite a Calvinistic country. And there's this huge work ethic that my parents certainly uh, put into me and my sisters. So I think when I started seeing the personal as more professional and started climbing the career ladder. Um, yeah, I allowed myself to ask questions without just doing it. And I, yeah, I think if I look at it now from, from a, of course, clearly more advanced leadership position, I think a lot of what we're telling ourselves and each other we need to do isn't that clearly defined. It's just this sense that we need to do it. And I think one of the most difficult elements in academia at the moment, and many, many, many other workplaces, um, is the sense of competition, is the ranking, is the fact that we're always competing against others. So it, it, if we all drive ourselves completely crazy, if we all produce, produce, produce more and more and more, and there's actually lots of evidence and in terms of research publications, we are producing more and more and more and more and still isn't stopping. Um, yeah, we're, we're never going to win because everybody else is also doing more and more and more. And so that sense that it's never enough and that we really need to stop and pause and wonder what academia is about. Why are universities on this planet? What is their most important role? What are their values? What, what can they do for the world? And is that best reflected in an academic output in terms of publications? And even if the answer is yes, then still, and I don't think it is actually, and you probably agree with me, but even if it's yes, then still, what, what is a good publication? And why are certain publications not as important for the rankings than others are? And why are certain people writing publications not getting the same credits as others? And then when you start looking at all of that, you realize that 
A, it's probably not the best outcome that universities should be using for their societal impact and their importance. And secondly, uh, there's huge bias in the way we value um, academic outputs and publications. And there are certain voices, certain people who just don't get their voices heard, who don't get the credit, who don't, um, who are not visible. And that's both within universities, between universities, but also globally. If you look at the output of the global north compared to the global south, there is such disparity. And it's, that's not because global south academics, by definition, are less excellent and less good and less driven than global north. Absolutely not. It has to do with opportunity. It has to do with visibility and it also has to do with bias in the way we judge their outputs and we rank them and we we look at what they're what they're doing so i think we're we're doing the planet a disservice by the way we're now framing our our production um, and to make it worse we're doing ourselves and our communities a disservice so we can't even say we're working so hard for the common good i think we're working so hard just because just because we feel we have to. You've touched on a lot there that is uh, very central to kind of my perspective of academia and, and what I first loved about academia. And the big one is competition. And I think I've noticed that there's kind of a skepticism or a cynicism about leaders and people who are successful, that there's either people that want to support you or people that think, well, I suffered, so you should suffer too. And that finding that balance, I think, and and personally, I've always, you know, tried to, to mentor and help. But in the back of my mind, there's always that idea that these are the people I'm going to competing, be competing against for, for jobs, for grants. And there is that little part of you that thinks, right, well, if I help them, is there, is there going to be enough of the pie to go around for me? Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's when it gets really complicated. Yeah. Now, and that's where, and then we haven't touched on that yet, it's very important that when we try to change, we don't just tell individuals they need to change. I don't just tell individuals they need to change, but I make sure that it's a systemic approach as well. So what I want for the University of Leeds, and I think every university should want, is to find um, good incentive systems and to make sure that people like you who are inherently inclined to help others and to mentor actually see that rewarded so you don't even have to ever have that tiny nagging you know, voice in the back of your head that maybe you're, you're um, enabling your own competition but you know that your university actually wants you to be doing that and there are lots of ways we can make sure that that happens if we think about rewarding group work instead of the individual pi who is so important and more important than everybody else. But if we look at, at research as, as a group activity, and if we think about it much more long-term and not you know, going from one grant proposal and, and funding round to the next and thinking about you know, publications, you need to do it in the next year because otherwise you're on to this next grant. And there's also sort of a breathlessness that we were introducing into academia, which is not conducive to good research. And that is something that is coming when you listen to um, UKRI, uh, Altaline Leiser, their, their head, their, I think she's director, I'm not even sure what her official title is, but the boss of UKRI. Um, she clearly um, wants to talk about research culture. She's very, very 
uh, clear about her wish to to change from sort of PI led to a research ecosystem with younger people also having opportunities with a whole research community. And then, of course, it's also much easier to have shorter term um, grants and contracts because you absorb them as a group. So it's not just one person is on this one grant and the other one is on another one and you're competing against each other. No, you're all part of this bigger pie and you can relax a little bit. So for me, <laughs> everything we can do to make people relax a little bit and, and don't feel like they have to fear for their lives every day they get up. And, and it's so unhealthy. And again, it's not the way to actually do the kind of work that universities are good at. I mean, we're incredibly powerful, potentially, as networked research and education institutes in tackling global challenges and really driving global change. And we're so busy with ourselves and, and, and our place in the rankings. And it's actually quite sad. And of course, that then permeates into the university community as well. I definitely think that's true. And one of the things that I value, and I'm very fortunate that I had a very strong mentor uh, during my PhD, Professor Jennifer Tomlinson at CEREC, who always told me to take time to just think about things. There's yeah. no, you, you will never have as much time as you do right now to just think. Yeah. Um, and I've definitely internalized that. And, and now I, I try to just just spend time thinking about research and what I want it to look like. And yeah. you're right that that breathlessness makes you think you don't have time. You just, yeah. you just have to produce and produce and produce and yeah. thinking. Yeah. And if you look at meta-analyses of research publications, A, there is this almost you know, exponential growth of the numbers over the last you know, 50 years. It's actually quite extraordinary. But it's, it's also really sad that most of the publications don't get read. I think the average publication gets read not even once, other than by people who wrote it. And that's, that's really sad. Yeah. <laughs> and the people that it's meant to be for probably wouldn't understand a lot of it because it's written with, and I don't understand half the papers that I'm supposed to understand. No, exactly. Because they're written using terms and acronyms that I just don't know. No. No, and that, that, that really needs to change because there's so much time and effort that goes into all that, that beautiful research and we need to make sure it lands where it needs to land and it gets becomes available not just to academics and to ourselves but also to the population, to policymakers, to people who need to use it. And I think that's the case even for the more fundamental sort of blue skies research, but especially, of course, for more applied. And yeah, but that, that means we need to stop chasing the rankings and chasing our own age index and all these other things that I think are, yeah, it's not very helpful. Probably true. Thanks so much for joining me on this podcast and for giving me the opportunity to interview you. I know I asked a lot of questions and I had a, a lot to say, but it's been really great to get to chat with you a little bit and get to know you better. Great. Thank you so much Thanks for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please look out for further podcasts and follow Simone on Twitter at S.E. Boytendijk. You can also follow the University of Leeds on Twitter at University Leeds.